You're listening to the Homelessness Services Association podcast. This is an audio-only version of one of our webinars addressing the challenges of frontline and shelter work during the coronavirus crisis. If you'd like to view the video or look at the slides, please go to hsa-bc.ca. Well, good morning and welcome to HSABC's webinar, From Outside to Inside, Supporting Clients in Temporary Housing After Decampment. It's a long title. Um, we tried to capture everything that this webinar is about, but mostly it's about um, how to support people in this transition period when your jobs are changing and their living arrangements are changing. So that's me up on the screen there. My name is Sarah Kift and I'm your host for today. I've worked in the frontline nonprofit sector for over 15 years, including in Vancouver's downtown east side at Carnegie Community Centre. I develop and host webinars for HSABC, as well as instruct mental health first aid and produce podcasts for mental health organizations here in Vancouver. So when you're using the question section, that's me who you'll be chatting to. And I'll do my best to share your questions and comments with Corey and Aylin as they come up. Um, I just want to say briefly that it's a it's continuing to be a stressful and uncertain time for so many of us, as well as those we provide services to. So thank you for taking the time to join us today. And hopefully the content we provide will help you to lead well and with courage in the midst of this crisis. The situation is continually changing, and we really welcome your input as we discuss things today, as well as your stories, ideas and questions. All right. So. Um, we also have a couple of polls today, and this is just to give us a sense of where you're coming from and what kind of work you're doing right now. So the first one is, what population are you serving right now? Uh, where is most of your work being concentrated? Is it with families? Is it with individuals in shelter, individuals on the street, uh, youth or seniors? And if you choose, um, if none of these apply or there's another category, please feel free to type that into the question section and um, we'll make sure we acknowledge those answers as well. This can also include um, individuals who are in new temporary housing set up during COVID-19. And maybe you're doing all of the above. We all know that in nonprofit work, often we have many job descriptions or the work we're actually doing does not apply to the job descriptions we have. So it looks like the majority of us are working with individuals in shelter or on the street uh, with about a smaller percentage with families, youth and seniors. <clears throat> so thank you for sharing that with us. It just gives uh, our instructors a little bit of a sense of, um, of what you're working on. This is my favorite part, introducing your amazing instructors to you today. So we have Corey on the left here. He started his nursing career facilitating a bloodborne pathogens program in the Edmonton downtown core. And since that time, he's worked on the harm reduction team in downtown Calgary. He's implemented HIV programming in rural Alberta, as well as the take home naloxone project and supervised consumption services in Medicine Hat. Um, Corey is highly driven and passionate about ethical and evidence-based approaches to public health problems. And most recently, he is 
back in Vancouver Island and has taken on the role of project manager for the Provincial Peer Training Curriculum Project with the Government of British Columbia, as well as many other things he is involved in, including advocacy systems and frontline work in Victoria's two homeless encampments, and now working on the ground, on the front line, in several of the hotels that have been transformed into sheltering places for people that were in encampments. And we also have Aileen Gosvik. Um, she's an incredible person. She tells amazing stories and she's been instrumental in developing resources and helping people in LA in the United States. Um, she's worked in homeless prevention for families, youth housing research and policy development, as well as housing first for the chronically homeless, for chronically homeless adults. And now she works in engagement for families and individuals. She was recently involved in rehoming people from one of Los Angeles's long-standing encampments due to the COVID-19 crisis. She specializes in diversion practice for homelessness prevention, but right now she is really uh, focusing in on outreach um, and working to allow people to have access to the services that they need and to create engagement in a time where uh, that can be very difficult. And she also used to live and work in BC as well. So she knows our context quite well, even though she's uh, working in a different city now. So Aileen and Corey, it's wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for the introduction and, um, I don't think that I need to spend any more time uh, speaking about myself, but I do want to also uh, acknowledge that I'm I'm very grateful for HSABC to be providing these opportunities to speak to each and every one of you. Uh, one of the goals with these webinars is to provide practical tools for people who are on the front line. And sometimes these conversations can seem a little bit high level, but there's so much that people on the front lines can do, uh, ranging just from, from high quality care for the people that you serve, but also on the higher level stuff, on the advocacy. Now is the time more than ever to, to speak out if something is wrong um, and, and to call out things and to hold people accountable. So thank you again, Sarah, um, and, and to HSABC for this opportunity. I also want to acknowledge that I am an unwelcome guest on the traditional territory of the Lekwungen speaking people, as well as the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wissanic people whose uh, relationship with the land continue to this day. Um, there's never been a time that is more relevant than now to be doing these land acknowledgements and to, and to really um, take stock of where you are and to appreciate what you have and to, and to really weigh that and, and to look at your privilege. I'm grateful to be on these lands. COVID has definitely demonstrated uh, something that many of us already knew, um, and is that that is that there is a huge amount of disparity when it comes to access to to health and social services. And and one of the things that it really highlighted is that um, housing is quite clearly um, a protective factor, a primary first line of defense against things like COVID nineteen and and a whole host of other negative health outcomes. And if we can acknowledge that, then we have to acknowledge the fact that housing is a matter of health. And if we can acknowledge that housing is a matter of health, um, then we have to acknowledge that housing is a human right uh, and that everybody should have equal, equitable access to it. I do want to give a little bit of a disclaimer today. Uh, we are going to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of the BC decampment experience. Parts of this story are pretty hard to digest. Some of you might be thinking, wow, 344 people were housed, and that happened in rapid succession. That's good. 
Why can't we just celebrate that? But I'm also sure that many of you have been reflecting on the racialized violence, the police brutality, uh, and the ongoing marginalization of people of color, both in the United States and here in Canada. That's why I'm going to make some very definitive statements right out of the gate. One, yes, housing is essential, and it is incredible that we house 344 unsheltered people during this pandemic. But also, it's about how we do it. And that's just about as important as the actual outcomes. The process to get people into hotels and some of the ways that people were left behind and the mechanisms that were used to control and combine people's movements were oppressive, and they did generate many harms. And we do need to acknowledge that as well as celebrating the successes. Today, we are going to start off with, um, with Elaine and um, Elaine, sorry, Elaine, I always get your name wrong. Um, and, and then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what happened in British Columbia. Uh, we're going to talk about the protocol on homeless encampments that was created by the UN Special Rapporteur on the right to housing. We're going to talk about decampment uh, and the process that was undertaken here in British Columbia. And we're going to talk about what's happening now and what it now looks like in the hotels, what the adaptations we had to make and some of the new strategies that we have to implement. Um, and, and yeah, really excited for today. And without further ado, I'm going to pass this on to Aileen. And Aileen, I'm going to give you control of the slideshow here. Um, awesome. Yeah, so you should be able to click through as you like. Uh, okay. So I actually just want to also acknowledge uh, the kind of racialized violence that's happening across our communities um, and specifically because this encampment that I was working with was 85% um, black and they're all very, they're familial ties and, and, you know, there is, there was also harm in having them move in and from, from all of the different places that people came to, I think like the biggest challenge that we faced in just trying to engage with people is that they don't trust us and they don't really have any reason to. Um, we've never really, clearly people have been outside a long time and we haven't been able to provide the right level of service in our communities. And I think being able to recognize why people wouldn't trust you was really hard to help people doing the work to understand um, and just really hard to accept for ourselves. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this assessment first. So I'm going to go a bit backwards. Sorry, Sarah. No, that's um, uh, When we got people into the hotels, the first thing that we kind of had to do was just figure out how are we going to even document stuff? And we had been given this blessing of not having to do a ton of paperwork. Like we signed one document for people to come in to prove eligibility. But that doesn't mean that as we start to provide housing services to people that they're not going to need a level of documentation and signed papers and et cetera, et cetera. Bureaucracy will always creep in for good and and kind of harmful reasons. Um, so we wanted to create a tool that we could document easily on. And that was built not on a question and an answer, but on how long you engage with people, you should be able to answer these questions and use tools that already exist. So a lot of people use the VI Spadat. If you use any sort of kind of acuity scoring tool, you would still want to do that. And that would be documented in this. And we just called it a collaborative assessment. We had people working in the hotel who are brand new to this and people who had been doing other jobs who either volunteered or were voluntold they were working here. <laughs> and, uh, so we wanted to make it as simple as possible. And so we started with this and then from there, we set up case conferencing. So we had uh, 
basically 370 people in hotels just under our agency. I think within our service area, which is one of eight, there is close to a thousand people indoors now who were not indoors before. Um, and we just recognize how like there's no way that we can all just kind of work through that and do it piece by piece. So there's a huge spreadsheet that goes with this case conferencing and we do it once a week with uh, people have like a caseload of 28 and they're just trying to get to know people. My my recommendation to staff always, because they're freaking out about how much paperwork they think they have to do is like, let go of that kind of thought because right now is a time for changing our system. We did this without paperwork. Let's try and just get people excited about housing. That is your job right now. Engage them, get them talking about it, make them see the potential of what could be but don't oversell that it's just going to happen because it's a ton of work and they have to do it. There is no way around that. And so I just tried to really like build case conferencing around more of the engagement and less of the paperwork. We do go through and make sure that people have the right level of documentation. You need an ID to be able to move into housing eventually or to apply for jobs or to get into a, a subsidy. So you have to start those things and get them moving. And it's a lot coming at everyone all at once. And so the other piece was just reminding people that perfection is not possible and we just need to try and we just need to do our best at this. Um, so I think that was a big part for myself and for the many people trying to get through this. Um, I And the last thing I'm going to say before I just kind of want to open it up for any questions or where Sarah, you want me to take this conversation from here um, and say that there's a ton of training online under NEH right now. And I know that the Canadian Alliance has also partnered to do some. Um, and we've we've put together some really fast and really in-depth kind of case management 101. Um, and they're free. You can just go into their website and enroll in this. It's one of a series that the picture is looking at. So if people want like a really in-depth look at how we envisioned the case management at, at these hotels to get people into housing, that would be a better place than me just telling the kind of story and process. <clears throat> Aileen, I'm really curious to know, because the last time we, we chatted, you were in the middle of uh, wrapping up a decampment, and we had talked a little bit about how that went but I'm curious to know how it's going in the hotels now because I think the last time you called in from a hotel hallway and we were talking about harm reduction and overdose and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what's been working for you with your staff what are the challenges that you've had to face and in order to keep people housed in a way that is actually helpful and not harmful for them. Yeah, um, good question, because that's been another huge thing that I think is changing in our world. Um, and there is space kind of in even those assessments to really dive into if that's a need for people. Um, it, we have probably, I would say, 35% in this one hotel is um, in, injecting in some way, or they're using a, a lot of substances that are can be very harmful and it's very hidden right now. Um, we've had a lot of conflict with our hotel staff. Um, and so it kind of remains hidden. And the harm reduction piece has been challenging, but we're at least talking about it with people. I think that's where the engagement comes in. And that's where like our harm reduction tactics are so sad and pathetic that I, I almost I don't know how much I want to get into it. Um, <laughs> But uh, that's where we need to engage with people and get them to 
trust that like we're not going to judge that that's happening and that we're going to try and support that takes changing staff's perception of harm reduction in general. And so it's a continuous like having to engage with staff when they see something and want to have a, a punishment in place for it. Um, and so it's a lot of changing those dynamics as well within your own kind of staff and the hotel staff and everything before you can even start to engage in true harm reduction kind of interventions with people who are using. Mm-hmm. And you so mentioned, think- um, you know, maybe take me through a day. What, what does your day look like in terms of liaising with staff, talking mm-hmm. with hotel staff, connecting with residents? Yeah, so I don't really connect with the hotel staff because they don't like me. Um, <laughs> so, and so I work a lot with um, I work a lot with the the participants who are there, the guests who are there, and trying to motivate them to just go look for housing, um, and do a lot of door knocking and just kind of walking around. Um, it's a huge hotel, and we've got a couple of them, and so. I'm either kind of on phone calls with all the staff. We're doing Zoom case conferencing where we're doing rapid fire 60 seconds updates on about 10 clients per staff person uh-huh. um, to just see where they're at and give them tips of like, okay, this is the next piece. Um, and so I do a lot of just trying to help our teams to understand like the process of walking with clients rather than doing for or kind of the opposite side of don't work harder than your client, which I really don't like that sentence Um, because it's a slower process to walk a client through looking on Craigslist. You can tell them to go look on Craigslist and then see the look on their face. And they haven't looked on Craigslist. They haven't looked on the internet for housing. They haven't, they haven't done that. Um, Their lives have been so radically different. And I think having our working with the teams a lot to really try and grasp how different their life was and that their skills that can be applied to looking for housing. It's just helping them to get those last few pieces. Uh-huh. We have to set up computers. That's a huge one. Like if people don't have access to computers and technology in the hotels that you're in, it's a, it's a barrier right off the bat because they need to be able to do this stuff on their own. Cause a lot of people can, and then there's a lot of people who need more help. And there's a lot of people who are ill, who came in after years and years and years and, may not have made it much longer out on the streets. And so there's a different aspect of client care that goes into working with them. And yeah, just there's a whole lot that goes into it. And I think our teams are running around trying to do their best in a world that just radically changed overnight. Like to take a team that does intake work in an office and place them in residential work (laughs) um, to do like, pretty in-depth case management. I think the training piece is always one of our biggest gaps. We can never train and get the information out to the people doing the work fast enough. Uh So a big part of my day is just being there to answer questions real time um, and, and seeing kind of the, the, the work that everyone is doing. Yeah. And it, it sounds like there's a theme here, which I've heard from you before and I love, and that is this understanding of humility. And so the idea that, um, you can't go into a situation where you're trying to help someone and just assume that they trust you or that they want your help or that you actually have the best idea about how to help them. Do you want to talk a little bit about that approach and how that's been working for you or how you've been encouraging your teams to do that? <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, I've I've learned some hard lessons by housing people without them. Um, And it just rarely works. 
and housing is such a um a personal thing that all of us have to figure out that I feel like when we look at housing as just a service to provide rather than a thing to create access to, um, we set people up to just rely on a system of housing that probably will not support them for very long. And if it does, it'll never be enough. Um, and even if they need subsidized housing because of poverty or extreme trauma that's leading to behaviors that need a lot of intervention, they still have to be a part of that process to get it um, one way or another. And I think you know, people have had so many bad experiences with providers, not because providers meant to do wrong, but because the intervention failed and it happens. You never know if an intervention is going to succeed. So I think just working with people to really get them to think about what they want to do next, which is a hard thing when you live in survival mode on the street, but it's a little easier in a hotel. So I think now's the time to just try to get people to try again, try to get uh, participants to try again, try to get staff to try again. And they're all kind of burned on a system that feels really challenging. Mm-hmm. And how has it been going? Um, what's the rate of people that are leaving the hotel? So, you know, there's this huge effort to get people inside because of COVID um, a coordinated effort. And now how's the maintenance phase going? <laughs> Um, I think that it's actually been much better than I thought it would be. Um, a lot of people are staying. I think we were very intentional in each of our spaces, which kind of had a different demographic to engage in ways that make a lot of sense. So, for instance, the hotel that I do the most work in, where the residents from the slide in front of you moved into, like we put a huge effort into getting hair product and skin product and just product for black people and it like it was just a game changer to even put that thought in ahead of time and make sure that people had access to that stuff and just looking at across the board in our hotel how are we going to make people feel the most kind of invested in this and I've said it a million times like exit starts at entry and we had to set it up from the front door of like this is just a temporary thing and we just kept telling people we have no idea when it's going to shut down um and people want to be there for the most part some of them hate it and complain but they don't leave one person left because it wasn't the right place for her cat and I was sad that I couldn't go and chat with her before she made that decision but uh she did and she left um I think that um specifically like my boss has been really really allowing me to be very lenient with people um and to do this in a way that I'm trying to set it up as like we don't have to be a service provider controlling the process we just have to be here to help people use this resource. Hmm. It's not our hotel. Um, And to just not have that control over rather, and they've seen us really advocate for people. The hotel will kick people out. That's been a problem. And it's usually the people who are quite ill, but we've done our, we've, we've found a different space for almost every single person to go who's been kicked out by our hotel management, which I think also has helped the people there feel a little more safe that they can trust us. Uh I really, we're out of, sorry, go ahead. No, that's, we're just, we're going to run out of options if people keep getting kicked out. So <laughs> yeah, tell them that you don't want it to be a merry-go-round situation. Um, yeah. I really like that phrase. Um, you're helping people, you're supporting people in accessing a resource as opposed to, um, uh, programming or you know creating power over them to control the situation i think that's a really key distinction to be made because um 
I always think about myself and if I was um, homeless for a long time and then suddenly housed, um, I would feel very uh, controlled. I mean, I like to set up my space. I like to set up my home the way I want it to be. I like to be free in my home to do what I want <laughs> without, um, you know, someone else who isn't related to me or uh, connected to me telling me what to do in the space. I mean, that's the definition of home is a place where you can be at peace and have safety and have rest um, and have autonomy. So I just wanted to pull that thread out. Um, and so how are your staff doing? Um, because we have a lot of frontline people on the line and I, you, you mentioned that people were being voluntold and, or they're switching from a, they're switching to a totally different model. So what's, what are the challenges that your staff are facing? And you talked a little bit about this, but tell me more about how you're working to mitigate that training piece. Um, yeah, so I think trying to put together a lot of video trainings, um, kind of a next step for me in probably the next couple of days to week and a half is just we're trying to put out a series of 10, 10 minute videos that kind of walk through little pieces of the system in a digestible way and kind of where we're at with the hotels and what the vision is um, so that people can really like start to be invested. Um, and to be fair, almost everyone, uh, I would say everyone on my team is invested in one way or another. They wouldn't be there. Um, even if they were kind of voluntold, people did it and, and they knew, like, I think that we led with enough honesty about, we don't know what this is, but we're going to try it. Um, and people don't love the role. And so we're trying to accommodate just getting people back to their regular jobs, especially the ones who don't like being in this role, because there still is regular jobs to go back to. Um, and, you know, we've been, my team is focused on the engagement and, uh, documentation and enrollment into programs for people. And so it made sense for them to be there now. And so we're kind of trying to get that team back to their regular job and bring in the next team of like case managers who do housing focused work once people have kind of that assessment done. So I think right now they're tired and they've put a lot into this and people have been very creative. And so I think they're doing well, but I also don't want to take away from how much I as a boss have asked of them in the last two months. I uh -huh. uh, don't want to discount that it's probably been really challenging. And I'm sure there's been a lot of times where it's not clear information on what they're trying to do. Case in point, they thought they'd get all this documentation done for two weeks and we're all panicking that I thought that they thought I was directing them to like do 70 pages of intake for all people in the hotel. And I was like, no, I just want you to get them to talk about housing. Mm -hmm. Everyone like relaxed, but that's my fault for not being clear and assuming that they would just understand the change in vision that I'm really excited about of not being paperwork heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a hard lesson learned that like frontline people have to pay. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're um, a kind of boss that recognizes uh, what you need to work on. And also you have a lot of empathy for your staff, which is really important, I think, especially when things are uncertain and uh, the rules are changing every day. It's because I love frontline work. I If I could have a perfect job, it would just be training people and like having little pilot projects of frontline work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so what do you see? Um, what do you see? You were talking a little bit about your vision. What do you see going forward in LA with what's happening right now? Um, I know you were talking before about you were working with a bunch of other organizations to get something like 
a thousand people off the street or what was, well yeah well we between all of the we opened rec centers I mean this wasn't our agency but we opened a lot of hotels now there's a thousand people just in our service area which is about the size of probably the lower mainland in population um, so we have eight thousand people on the streets in our service area and we moved a thousand people indoors which makes a big difference in the visibility like it it definitely changed things. And so um, I think now we have to figure out how to make sure people don't go back to the street from this and that this isn't just some other resource that felt like felt like a real thing only to let people's hope down, like in a really hard way. Mm. So I think that's kind of the, the complex problem now that's facing LA County because we're not, we're one of eight service areas with kind of a similar story and not, not enough housing resources in terms of subsidy by any means, but housing is cheap right now or cheaper than it was. It's not cheap at all. I'm sure it's not in Vancouver either. Um, you guys might be the one place that's more expensive in rent. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the same industry of, of what you're doing, but you know, rents are going down. People aren't moving as much into kind of units. Things are just different. It's worth trying to get as many people through like rapid rehousing programs as possible. But so many people have been burned on rapid rehousing when it's not done well. And I, I understand that. So I think the system is facing some big challenges in just same thing, like trying again, like almost doubling down on some things that we've been trying to make happen, like rapid rehousing and, and progressive kind of uh, engagement into those kind of higher levels of housing. Mm-hmm. How do you get 8,000 people into housing with resources for a thousand of them? Yeah. Uh, you know, working in nonprofit means you're very comfortable or used to the idea that uh, there's a, certain, a limited number of resources and then the rest is up to uh, luck, creative solutions and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, things that have not yet appeared. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to wrap up here with you before we move on to Corey, I wonder if you could just tell me, I'm putting you on the spot a bit, but do you want to just reflect maybe on one or two um, people that you've been working with and uh, what worked and what didn't work? Or, you know, maybe a story from a staff member. Uh, let's just sort of take it down to the level that we were talking about in terms of engagement with people. Um, I remember last time you had a story about somebody who didn't want to engage with you because they had a, a rooster and mm -hmm. um, they were afraid. And then you also mentioned someone who was afraid of going into the hotel because they felt like they were going to be eliminated. So they had a um, very real fear around uh, being disappeared once they connected with services. Yeah, um, she still won't connect with services. Uh, but she is connecting with her her friends who are in the hotel who have been I, I mean, I keep telling them just tell her to come. Um, but she's not around where she was anymore. So uh, but she is still she's still there. So I'm sure she's in the near neighborhood. People don't go very far. And we're trying to get outreach to kind of get back into the routine now that that large encampment is gone. And that was that was pretty much their work for the last few years. So now they need to find a different kind of way to engage that community. Um, but so a story about someone that I've engaged with. I'm going to talk about this one person who actually has been relatively engaged with me from the very beginning. Um, I've had a very long history with this couple of uh, 
by accident. Um, years ago, we found an SRO that had 10 units, moved them in, didn't have a piece of paperwork. Anyways, got messy. The mayor's office was involved. They told us we had to kick them all out. People went back to the street after like 12 weeks in housing. It sucked. Um, and this couple was at this encampment that we um, uh, got the hotel for. And uh, we had been engaging with this one person for years and she was the one placed in the SRO. And then when I got to know them as a couple, I realized we'd been engaging the wrong person and that we should have been engaging her other partner. They both have the same name um, because the other partner is just like, she's trying so hard to like keep them both together and like moving forward, but she's struggling with her partner. And I was like, oh, okay, this is, if I help her get into housing, they'll both get into housing. And I probably won't need to help her really get into housing all that much. It just, And it's been tough because I really am determined to not house her for her. And she kind of, you know, she wants me to go to viewings all the time with her. And I mean, I'm not a frontline worker. I, I want to go to viewings with her. I think it would be great. Um, and she, uh, we were approached by Netflix to kind of tell this story. And uh, she's kind of looking to like be the storyteller for the group. And like, she's the youngest of three who are um, of youngest in a generation, three generations of people in this hotel. So her grandma, her dad, and her two aunts are all in this hotel. Mm. Um, and she's 35. She's, you know, not very much older than I am. And uh, yeah, I've just been engaging with her now for months and months and months. And I am, you know, I keep just giving little things and little tips of like, go try this, go talk to landlords, go like, I, you know, I'm really determined to not do this for her. And I'm probably gonna have to step it up just a little and do a little bit more with her because I can just see that she's not like, she's afraid to take that step and go try. Uh Um, So I think it's a really good example of kind of progressive engagement and not taking people's capacity away um, and not taking away their opportunity to, to learn this skill for themselves. Um, Cause she is just, you know, she could, she's so capable of building the life that she wants. And I think institutions have a bad habit of doing things for people and taking away their opportunity to build that life that they, they totally want. Mm-hmm. She's trying to work slowly with her and I'm going to put a camera in her hand and let her tell her own story. I think it'll be very cool. Yeah, I think so too. I'm looking forward to that. Um, and then just quickly, do you want to touch on, um, you mentioned that there's people that are quite ill um, mm-hmm. and a lot of times uh, they haven't engaged with services, medical uh, especially, but once mm-hmm. we bring them into housing, uh, they're, their issues and their needs become more urgent and apparent to us. Uh, Can you tell me how you're handling that? Yeah. So step number one is realizing that a lot of people in the streets only ever access emergency health services. And so, I mean, the fire department hates us right now. Um, And ambulances are there all the time because everyone calls an ambulance for everything. Um, so there's that aspect to deal with, which also complicates when you have people with very serious health issues and the fire department is kind of done with your phone calls and they take their time to get to you. Um, so that's a little bit of a challenge. We've had people come in with, you know, like a significant, um, uh, amount of issues around incontinence and people don't want to talk about it. And it's getting kind of the, to the point where you have to, you have to just put the resource right in front of them and not make them come and ask you for it. I think that's a huge one when people have health concerns and they're coming in, they're probably going to have open wounds and things like that. Just making sure that they have the stuff they need to care for themselves oh. without having to come and ask 
a 32 year old white girl for it. Like no one wants that. Um, and so I think just providing that level of dignity when people come in with a lot of health issues um, and, you know, we have nurses on site and our funders and kind of like uh, policymakers gave them this huge health assessment and they're like, do it with everyone. And we're like, no, that's dumb. You should just go do it with the people who are sick. Like, We're just trying to use our resources wisely and make sure that the nurses are really well aware of the kind of people who are sick and that we're keeping an eye on if we don't see them for a day, uh-huh. uh, they're in their own room and we want to provide that space and that privacy. So I think that's been kind of a learning, a learning piece. And we, we don't have very much medical other than the nurses that are like, we had one nurse who it was her first day ever as a nurse. <laughs> wow. There for like one day. Um, so, which is fine. Like it's, it's not, it's just, we don't have the medical capacity that a lot of people need. And so I think it's just recognizing that and helping staff and guests to recognize when you call 911 versus not. Mm-hmm. It's been so, I can just picture you in your work and, and what you're doing and it, I, I'm blown away, but also it's amazing to hear your reflections on it. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And as we go along here, if there are any questions for Aileen or for Corey, please just type them into the question section and we'll answer them right away. We do have a bit of material, but it's really about helping you uh, on the call to, to problem solve and to get some the information you need in order to for you to support the people that you're working with. Um, so thank you, Aileen. I really appreciate it. Corey, um, I'm going to hand things over to you. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Elin. It's, it's really great to hear your experience um, and, and some of the learning opportunities that you had in your process. I can definitely echo a lot of what you said, um, ranging from the impact that this has had on, on frontline workers. And, you know, I, I remember I've, I've been working with a group who has gone from working in an overdose prevention site to doing exclusively outreach to different streets, to setting up in an encampment in a park, to now working in hotels. And that has happened over the succession of, of less than three months. And, and I just got to give a shout out to all of you frontline workers because that is so incredibly hard and you just keep doing it and you keep showing up and you keep being there for people who need you. So I, I really appreciate that. I'm going to try and improv this a little bit and um, and and take you on a little bit of a journey on how we got here uh, here in British Columbia, specifically focusing on Victoria, because that's where I've been. Uh, and I want to make this iterative. So I want opportunities for for Aileen to jump in and for Sarah to jump in and for all of you, if you have questions. Uh, back in March, when when the uh, COVID crisis really started to to show up and some of the lockdown measures took hold here in British Columbia, um, a lot of us recognized the warning signs very, very early. And that was that shelters and other low barrier, low threshold services started to um, pare down their their ability to house, but to keep people indoors. They started to restrict services. Many of them closed outright and and changed their approach to being outreach. Um, and and those of us who who are in touch with the front line and and saw some of these warning signs were gravely concerned um, because we had a surge of people coming out onto the streets who no longer had access to supports, um, and we had people on the the Pandora. Um, on the 900 block in Pandora, who were filling up the streets and 
um, what happened was uh, the decision was made to establish um, a, a park encampment and that we were going to direct people to this encampment and provide them with, with resources and supports in order to um, safely social distance, in order to have access to hand hygiene um, and to have access to basic needs supports during this crisis while we figured out what would be the best way to support people. The problem was that um, we we didn't get things happening in a quick enough rate. We didn't move very quickly. Uh, and I say we as in the royal we. Um, and a lot of us were, were kind of sounding the alarm that this is a big concern. And so a group of us put out uh, these six urgent actions to address inequitable COVID-19 responses for people experiencing homelessness. And we were asking for access to housing. Uh, we were asking for support for people to be able to shelter in place if they didn't want housing. We wanted safer supply to be something that was rolled out as soon as possible. Um, and there is definitely a stark difference between what's available in the United States and what's available in Canada. Um, but here in Canada, we had also just received new guidelines that we could provide people with safe alternatives to the illicit drugs that they were using. Uh, but we didn't have much uptake on it yet. And so um, not a lot of people had access to it. We also wanted to make sure that people had access to healthcare and COVID testing. Uh, we wanted people to be able to be tested if they were presenting with symptoms. Um, and it took quite a bit of time for that as well, because originally people who were homeless and experiencing homelessness were not made a priority for testing, uh, nor were the frontline workers who were working alongside them. We also wanted to push for decriminalization of survival-based activities, including uh, personal possession. Um, and we also just wanted to make sure that people were being engaged. And that's something that I really appreciate from Aileen's uh, talk is that they really do all they can in order to engage with people and to find out what they want and what they need. And we didn't do that very well here in Victoria and in British Columbia. Instead, uh, what we got was a public health response that was quite disjointed and ineffective. We had about seven days before we had access to any soap and water. We had 17 days before people had access to showers. And we had over 45 days without access to laundry. This is not a great approach to a public health pandemic, to a global pandemic. These are primary protective factors that would keep people safe. We were lucky uh, and continue to be lucky. I'm gonna knock on whatever wood I can find um, because COVID never showed up in the population that we were working with. We, we never had a positive case. Um, but that, again, is sheer dumb luck, because if it had, uh, it would have spelled out some really, really terrible outcomes for people. We actually ended up creating a situation where people felt very isolated, um, where they felt very anxious. Um, and you know that those are precursors to, to different types of harms. What does police presence, fences, and forced displacement with social isolation and a, and a volatile drug market have in common? Um, well, they're all factors that are going to increase risk for death. And we did have people who died in the parks. Uh, we had people who died in Pandora. We had people who died in, in Topaz. And it was really heartbreaking um, because they're, they're preventable deaths. And it was really sad, too. Um, of course, any, any death is sad, but it was really sad to know that people could pass away in their tents and they could be there for as long as they were right next to other people. And we still weren't able to connect and take care of each other. And that's just one of the highlights in, in how things didn't go very well for us. You can see that there's a completely different approach for two public health crises here in BC. 
in COVID-19, um, you know, we had weekly reporting, we had messaging that we're all in this together, rah, rah, we need to work on these things together. We had a substantial amount of investment going towards prevention and treatment. But when it looks, when you look at the overdose crisis here in British Columbia, that continues to be a more significant uh, risk factor uh, than COVID ever was, especially for the population that we work with. And yet we still only get monthly reporting. Um, you know, we, we have a, just a drop in the bucket of, of investment compared to what COVID got. And the outcomes were completely different. So we had 161 people die from COVID in British Columbia in 2020. And so far, we've had 377 reported deaths of overdose in 2020 here in British Columbia. So over double were, were deaths in overdose. And that speaks to the fact that during this time, uh, COVID precautions actually created more risk for overdose. Uh, not only were people isolating, but their access to the drug supply was hindered. And people who their regular supplier was no longer available. Um, and we started to see drugs being adulterated with, with many other types of drugs. I worked really closely with the drug testers uh, and we found samples that uh, contained up to 24% fentanyl. Um, Pre-pandemic fentanyl concentration in, in the drug supply is about 5%. Uh, so this is almost five times um, the concentration of fentanyl. And we also started to see other drugs being mixed in uh, and some really dangerous ones, some benzos, um, as well as a drug called xylazine, uh, which is an animal sedative that's toxic to humans. And the result was that we saw a huge amount of overdoses. There was a day in the park where I personally responded to seven overdoses in one day. And it is taxing on, on the people who are experiencing this first and foremost. And it also wears out the staff. There was a time in the parks when you know, staff were crying just whenever they were alone, people would start to cry. And we saw people come and go and quit um, because it was just so much to ask someone to do. And there was so much dismay and there was so much despair. It's also important to look at the fact that um, our response, while we can pat ourselves on the back, uh, getting in 650-ish people um, in Oppenheimer, Pandora and Topaz housed, um, there's around 7,000 people who are homeless um, in, in British Columbia who are experiencing homelessness. And when you look at the fact that the only focus was on Pandora, Topaz, and Oppenheimer, you have to ask why. And, and a lot of that is because of the optics, because of the visible poverty. It was a move to get people out of the public eye. Um, there was good intentions around it, absolutely. Um, but if those good intentions were true all the way through, uh, we would have seen efforts to house people who were in other encampments, who were in other parks, uh, but we didn't see that, prior that priority being set. Luckily, we got uh, some timely clarification from the UN Special Rapporteur on the right to housing, uh, and we now have a national protocol for homeless encampments in Canada. The reason why I want to make sure um, that I talk about this again, because we did talk about this a month ago, uh, is because I'm going to keep talking about it. We need to look at this protocol and look at our current approach, and we need to weigh what we're doing versus what the ideal practice is. A lot of you who are not in Vancouver and Victoria are going to start experiencing this as well, or may already have, because there are other encampments that have been set up during this time. There are a lot of small encampments across the island where there's around 12 people per encampment. 
Um, so this problem, this this issue, this transition is is not unique to Victoria and Vancouver anymore. And so a lot of you are going to start to see these things happen. Some of the rights um, that come from that UN Special Rapporteur are um, that we need to recognize residents of homeless encampments as right holders. And this means the shift away from criminalizing or penalizing or obstructing homeless encampments uh, to an approach where we actually want them to participate and that it's based in rights. Um, and we didn't see that in, in Victoria very well as, you know, we, we had a lot of issues with these fences that were put up in the, in the encampments during the decampment process. Um, and I actually remember being on a phone call with a lot of really high level leaders. And I said, look, we're, we're caging people in with these fences and it's traumatizing to them. And, and, you know, it's increasing risk because it's harder to get to them to respond to an overdose. It's hard for people to find their way out at night. And I remember, um, the response was, Corey, we don't cage people. But if you really look at the optics of things, definitely looks like they do uh, or they did cage people. And we had folks on the street. We had folks in the encampments who were telling us, like, this is really hard to deal with. I feel like I'm, in a, zoo, I'm a zoo animal and people are watching me now. It's also really important to look at the third principle here, which is that we need to prohibit forced evictions from homeless encampments. Um, you know, it, people should only be decamped or, or moved if there is a better opportunity for them. And it's something that they want to do as well. It shouldn't be something that's enforced on them in that way. I remember working in the parks and there was a person who was there and, and then she got into detox because she wanted to go into detox. And we made a plan that from detox, she was going to go directly uh, into a hotel and then three days later, I saw her back at the encampment and I was like, what's going on? What happened? And she told me, they told me to come back here. They said that this would be the best place to get housed from. And they didn't want me to slip through the cracks. And I thought, holy crap, like where we're at right now, this is the cracks. Like you have slipped through the cracks by coming back here. And we also have to look at the fact that, um, decampments, housing, it should never be framed in a, in a public safety order. It should never be framed in the lens of enforcement. It should come from a human rights, from a health lens. Um, but instead in British Columbia, we received a public safety order, provincial safety order. Um, and people who were homeless and in the encampments were almost framed as people who are risk to the community. And that's why they needed to move. And with that came a heavy police presence. With that came a lot of, um, coercion in order to move people and to relocate people. There was a time when people were being offered $20 to move their tent to a different place. And as soon as they moved, a fence would go up. Uh, and it was really hard for them to manage that and really hard for them to deal with that. So what happened? Well, we tried our best uh, in order to really make sure that there was a proper plan in place in order to get people into hotels. We really wanted to make sure that if we were gonna do this, we did this with people uh, first and foremost, that, that it was in, they were consulted, they were leading it, they were telling us what they needed. Uh, and so we tried really hard to push back on some of the decampments. We did get um, uh, an extension on the date. It was originally supposed to be May 9th, and they pushed it back to May 20th to give service providers more opportunity to, to make a plan and to make sure that they had services in place. Um, and we were promised that, it, you know, when decampment day came, it wouldn't come with a heavy hand of law enforcement. The reality again is much different. 
Um, May 20th came and went and it wasn't really a big deal. And it wasn't until the following Sunday um, that people were uh, started to be forcibly moved. And I showed up um, because someone texted me and said, like, people are being arrested on Pandora. Um, so I, I came there and I witnessed a whole bunch of bylaw and police officers, um, a company that takes down tents, um, and they were just circling around people's tents. And the people were staying in them because they didn't want to move. But if they got out of their tent right away, they would move in and they would take away their tent and they would throw out their property. So people were holding out and they were staying in their tents uh, because they didn't want to lose their property. They didn't want to go anywhere and they didn't have access to housing. They weren't offered hotels. Uh, and it was really, really traumatizing for them. Um, I remember there was um, people were saying that we haven't eaten all day because if we get up to go and get food, they're going to throw out our tents. Um, so I went and bought 10 pizzas and delivered them to their door. Uh, to their tents. But even then, it only delayed the inevitable. And, and very soon after, people were forcibly moved and, and arrested, which is not the way that we should be doing things. Now, it's also important to talk about where we're at right now, right? And in the hotels, there has been a lot of successes. There's been a lot of challenges. Um, we have seen people pass away in the hotels as well. Um, there was someone who was very high risk who was in the parks, uh, but we had people watching them and we had a community set up. And the day after they got put into housing, uh, they passed away. And that's because they were alone. They were isolated. They didn't have access to their supports. What we did do, though, is we were able to put together a 10 point plan on what should happen, what harm reduction, um, what harm reduction services should be available um, and so now I'm going to talk a little bit about the good, the bad, and the ugly of where we're at right now. So the good is that there's 344 people that are now in hotels in Victoria. And we are met with some new challenges for sure, or at least some new iterations of the same challenges. Isolation and overdose continue to surge, but we've created some systems where safe supply is accessible for people and it's getting easier and easier. Uh, we have overdose prevention services established inside uh, each of the hotels so people can go down to the main lobby and they can access a room where they can safely inject or smoke their drugs and be monitored um, in order to keep themselves safe. We also established uh, routine wellness checks um, and, and I should preface that by saying uh, wellness checks are not overdose prevention. Um, if anybody tells you that a wellness check is used for overdose prevention, um, they obviously haven't experienced much with overdose. You can check on people every 10 minutes and still miss someone. Um, essentially, wellness checks are, are, are to make sure that people haven't already passed away. Our group of advocates met with ministers and decision makers to foster a better system of accountability. Uh, we didn't get everything we wanted, especially when it came to the decampment process, but we were able to get major buy-in for a 10-point plan for harm reduction services in residential and hotel settings. These 10 points included harm reduction supplies available at the front desk, so every hotel uh, at the front desk, there's a table where people can access harm reduction supplies, needles, swabs, cookers, ties, uh, safer smoking gear, um, information, resources, and naloxone kits. We also asked for nursing support to assist with access to safe supply. And in each of the hotels, there's a miniature clinic that is set up in one of the rooms where doctors actually rotate and people can have access to primary care physicians. Uh, they can have access to safer supply. Um, and so we're really trying to make sure that while we didn't originally meet people where they're at, we're trying to do that now. 
we needed to make sure that peers were an integral part of the distribution, education, and witness injection process. And we have fantastic peers and peer-run agencies here in Victoria, um, like Solid and Peers Resource Society, um, iHeart and, and Poverty Kills, all working around the clock in order to provide that peer support. We wanted to make sure that there was a dedicated space for overdose prevention services, which we got, uh, as well as witness inhalation services. We have a we had a in the one that I work at, at the travel lodge, we actually had an inhalation booth built off of the side of the of the hotel. Uh, so people can go in and they can smoke their drugs and they can be supervised uh, and, and someone can respond to their overdose if necessary. We did make sure that we wanted people to have access to virtual supports and to be able to talk to people and, and to really address that social disconnection. Uh, so we partnered up with, with a group called Vicar which is Victoria Inner City COVID Response Team. It's a group of physicians and nurses, uh, and they were able to provide prepaid phones to people, uh, cell phones. Uh, and we also had the Lifeguard app installed in it, uh, which is an app that you can use. Uh, and if you are going to use drugs, uh, you can access the app and someone will check on you if you don't respond. Uh, so it's kind of a virtual overdose prevention services service. We also wanted to make sure that people who were left unsheltered and unhoused still had supports. Um, this is definitely still very tenuous and, and difficult. A lot of the people who didn't get access to hotels and housing ended up going to places like Beacon Hill Park, Stadacona, um, in, in Vancouver. People who were in Oppenheimer Park ended up going to Crab Park. Um, so there still are people who are out there in the community who didn't get access to these hotels. And we really wanted to highlight the fact that they need equitable access to services as well. We pushed for alcohol delivery and managed alcohol support. It's a big risk factor right now with isolation with people who use alcohol, especially because they don't have access to their regular income, uh, that they can go through life-threatening withdrawal and have seizures. Uh, so we've been working really closely with a whole number of collaborators in order to provide managed alcohol services for people. Uh, and we also wanted to make sure that there was harm reduction training and overdose response for staff and residents. I'm very fortunate in the travel lodge that the managers have been so progressive and so chill about things that they just let us kind of do our thing there. And they're really supportive and they don't get upset if people use or if there's a fight or something like that. They kind of just sit back and, and let us take um, take control of those types of situations. But we need to make sure that they're also trained and we need to make sure that they understand why we're doing the things that we do. So we do offer regular kind of check ins. We have a morning health huddle. Uh, and we go over things like overdose response. We go over things like reminding people we're still in a pandemic because one of the things I learned about getting people into hotels is as soon as they got into hotels, people forgot about COVID. Um, they they kind of believed that this was like the next box to check off. Uh, and so I saw lots of people crowding really closely with each other. Um, masks weren't being used, common touch surfaces weren't being cleaned. And so we really needed to reframe ourselves and resituate ourselves in this dual um, pandemic, this dual crisis. Um, and then when we were able to kind of remind everybody about that, we saw a complete change. We saw hallways were getting cleaned more, common touch surfaces were getting disinfected. And while it wasn't the responsibility of peers and nurses and volunteers to do it, it should have been provided. Um, we all just decided to chip in. And so people would go and do their wellness checks, but they would also bring the bottle of bleach and rags. And as they went along doing the wellness checks, they would also clean the doorknobs and clean the, the handrails uh, because we all just wanted to try and fill those gaps. What's the bad about this? I was well, just going to ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
peers and people with lived and living experience continue to shoulder the brunt of this crisis and they're not getting enough resources to do it. Um, there's been so many asks for community agencies, for people with lived and living experience to take on all these monumental new tasks. Uh, there's be, there's money being thrown at it, but it's being thrown at the same people and they continue to stretch themselves out thinner and thinner in order to meet all of these needs and meet all of these demands. And what's the ugly side of it? Well, people were arrested when they were decamped. They were left behind or not offered housing. A lot of people uh, were evicted, especially early on. Uh, we had a few people who were just cyclically housed and evicted. And that process is really traumatic for people. It really is hard um, to go through that over and over again. I know there was one person who was housed and then they got into a fight with someone where they were. He got a little bit of an injury, he went to the hospital. And in the morning, the police drove him back to the park. And, and when I talked to him, he's like, I guess I'm just one of those people that's never going to get housing. And it was really heartbreaking to see that. Um, now, there is some crisis. Obviously, there is bad things to talk about, which I've highlighted them. But there is also a lot of opportunity. And so with all of that being said, we're also in a time of innovation. There's a really clunky start to safe supply. Um, but there are now people who are safer than ever before. I know that we had this one person, uh, one of the staff was telling me that we had one person come into our overdose prevention service just to say hi, um, not to use their drugs. And he looked at the worker and said, uh, I can't believe that I've gone this long without injecting down. Um, I just haven't even been thinking about it. And you can see the stability that returns to people, the, the reduction in, in chaos in order to get their drugs um, or, or go through dope sickness and withdrawal. Um, and when they have their needs met like that, like things just turn around so quickly and people feel healthy and they feel supported. But we need to keep pushing and we need to keep pushing for more innovation. Safe supply was a really great step forward, but it has to be demedicalized and has to be made more readily accessible for people. And the next natural step, of course, is decriminalization. Uh, so I included this on the last slide here. Uh, our fearless uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, has has re-upped, she said this a year or so ago, but she has re-upped uh, in her commitment that we should be decriminalizing illicit drugs. Um, and so we need to keep pushing for these things because while we are in a time of crisis, we are also in a time of opportunity to see a lot of change happen. Mm -hmm. Just sort of digesting all of this, uh, Aileen, what's your reaction to hearing Corey speak? I know um, we're we're talking across country here, two different um, places with different resources and different leadership and different situations. But uh, what do you think? What, what's your what's your initial impressions? Just so we can get a dialogue going here. Um, I would really love to set up a table in the front of the hotel with all of that stuff on it. Uh, I'm still fighting for sharps containers, to be honest. So. Um, what do you do? Like, what do you do though? Like, people are obviously still injecting. Like, yeah, where is yeah. where are the sharps going? And 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 how everywhere. Do you everywhere. Everywhere. Yep, they just go everywhere, and like we see them all the time, and that's kind of the problem with it, right? And it's like, I don't know how to get people to see the 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 just lack of common sense in that. It just doesn't make sense to me, and so. I don't think I explain it in a very political way when I, I'm just like, what the like F <laughs> don't know why we don't have sharps containers. Um, excuse my almost language. So that's kind of my reaction is just like, I mean, 
I also I appreciate the acknowledgement of just, you know, people got arrested. Things things didn't go perfectly. And there's still a lot of people outdoors. <laughs> a lot. And that kind of forgetting it's a pandemic as well was very real for us. And it still is. So, yeah, I think that's kind of my overall reaction is like very different landscapes, but very similar problems. Yeah, I'm really I'm interested. Like I want to I want to push a little bit more and, and you can just tell me to, as you said, F off. Um, and but like what would happen if you set up a table in the hotel? What would what would be the response? Like, how does that look in the United States? Um, it's it's actually it would just be I mean, we can supply like Narcan um, and Suboxone, but we can't like we wouldn't be able to do the needles at all. It'd be illegal. Um, the hotel management would just probably like throw me out and call the cops on me or something. Um, you know, the cops kind of barge into our hotel a lot, too. It's really annoying. So I would be, yeah, I wouldn't want to have that on display there because it would just give them more reason to be constantly coming over there. Hmm. Yeah. Such a a stark difference. (laughs) It makes me uh, all the more in admiration of the work that you're doing, Aylin, right now because uh, of the different landscape and the different uh, laws and things that are applying. So I'm going to open it up for questions here. Um, do you guys feel like being on video? How are you doing today? Oh, what the heck? Let's do it. <laughs> Welcome back to my garage, everyone. Um, and and Aylin, I should say, I uh, I swear, like one, at least once a, once per webinar. So okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to reach out then to everybody who's on the call. Um, You have before you two people that have been doing this work on the front line, day in and day out, learning the lessons, managing staff teams, connecting with uh, residents. And so I just want to give the opportunity for you to ask them uh, whatever question you like. Um, Corey, I had a couple questions for you just as we're waiting for more questions to come in. you mentioned a while ago that you were working at the travel lodge and you did talk a little bit about what's going on there. Um, can you tell me about what your day looks like when you're there? For sure. I actually, um, I took a week to, I was like doubling, I was working two full-time jobs at the same time for quite a while. And so um, I haven't been there in a week and I'll be back there next week, but typically um, my job, I, you know, go in there and we start off, we have a health huddle. We talk about what the emerging trends and issues are. Um, what are the, you know, new best practices, because those are still changing every single flipping day. Um, we talk about, you know, we do routine kind of re-ups on training, remind people about overdose response and what that looks like in the context of COVID, um, talking to people kind of about the basics of, of some of those protective factors related to COVID. You know, we had some people, it was really, uh, I'll just go off on a tangent anyways, but there was really, um, there was a part that was quite, um, it struck me. Uh, I was talking to someone and I just very casually was saying like, you know, people who, Uh, wear gloves all the time and they go door to door and touch their pen and touch their mouths, you know, they don't understand that they are potentially transmitting the virus all over the building. Um, And one of the new staff 
um, she, she got quite upset and, and I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Like what's going on? And she said, nobody's taught me this. Like, I wish that I had known this because this is what I do. I walk around with my one pair of gloves on and I knock on people's doors and I check on them. And I thought that I was doing something to protect them, but now it sounds like I'm doing something that could potentially put them in harm's way. And it just reminded me that while we've done so much education around COVID, um, there isn't an equitable access to that training and education. And a lot of people who are working on the front lines are too busy to access that type of training because they're just they're working constantly. Um, so we need to make sure that we can find more opportunities to provide training and education for people. Uh, after the health huddle, um, you know, it, it's day to day. It's quite different. It depends on what the issues are. Sometimes I'm working with the hotel management and um, the the manager of kind of the, the process, which is the Greater Victoria Coalition to End Homelessness, uh, to talk about staffing needs during check week and, and what we're going to do in order to mitigate some of the harms of overdose in hotel rooms. Uh, and then other times I'm just in the overdose prevention site. Um, and I'm working with people who come in, uh, working with the drug checkers um, and, and responding to responding to overdose. Um, it varies every single day, depending on what the need is. Um, sometimes I'm sitting at my computer typing up protocols for cleaning. Sometimes I'm, you know, working with the doctors in the in the clinic in order to identify someone who's a good candidate for safe supply. Uh, so there really is no no consistency in, in what the day to day looks like. Um, but it definitely keeps things fresh. Mm. Um, I have a great question here, which I think will kind of take us, if there are other questions that come up, uh, it'll, it'll take us some time to answer it. Uh, so, and I also want to add one of my own, and that is I'm saying this as a frontline worker who worked in Vancouver's downtown side for many years. Um, I think every frontline worker knows the disconnect between what, you should be doing and what's on the books in terms of the policy manual that you read when you start your job and then what actually happens when you go to work uh the level of chaos the level of need um just the the lack of resources or just the daily um wildness of dealing with people <laughs> who are experiencing trauma or are uh you know, under the influence of substances or, you know, you guys are nodding because you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I think everybody on the call probably does. I had my duties, I had my job description, and then I had my actual work. Um, so my first question is, um, how's that going? How, how are you managing the chaos? <laughs> because you've both been working really hard to put protocols and policies in place, and you're both in positions of authority in terms of managing people. How are you, um, how are you handling that? How are you getting your staff to handle that? Yeah, I'll, I'll, you can go, Aileen, you go. Uh, I think the first thing is just being available and having them either have a, a way to talk with their managers, with you, especially now that we're all kind of scattered. So I think just making sure that you're available is number one. Um, but beyond that, I think just helping people to recognize, like I said before, perfection isn't possible here. And we kind of don't have a job description right now, which is fun. So let's look at what the job is. Like if you are there, like let's look at what the job is and what you're doing and, and let's use your skills to do that. So rather than saying this is the job that everyone is doing, like people are coming in to 
jobs that we didn't write a job description for before they got there. Um, so it's just kind of utilizing people's skill set where it makes sense rather than having everybody doing the same job. And I think that helps to, I don't know, just calm the chaos and, and people are doing stuff that they're good at. And so that helps mm-hmm. to feel just like you're accomplishing something that your work is meaningful, uh, which who wants to work super hard at a job that feels like you're just getting nowhere. Um, so I think that was, uh, that's a big thing for me is just making sure skill set matches. Um, so yeah. Yeah. That's great. Corey. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate that for sure. And someone much wiser than me, um, told me don't let perfection be the enemy of good. And like, so if, if you're able to do some good, don't get hung up on the fact that it's not perfect. And so all of these protocols and procedures that have come out, they've been not really well framed in the context of homelessness and working in these types of situations, working in these types of environments. A lot of the protocols and recommendations have this like ideal fit scenario. This is what you would do to respond to an overdose. Um, This is the regular amounts of cleaning. This is the PPE that you need to be wearing if you can't guarantee social distancing. And a lot of people, when they read all of those things, they're like, I can't. Like I, that, there's no way that that's actually going to happen. There's no way that that's actually going to work. And so I, I talk to, and they're not my staff. I work, I work with them. I'm not any of their, their managers or, or bosses or anything like that. But I do work with them in order to kind of apply a harm reduction approach to the recommendations. What's the most amount of good and what's the most amount of recommendations that you can apply to your workplace that doesn't completely take away from the very important work that you're doing? Um, and I can totally attest to the fact that the, the the protocols that are in place don't really speak to what's happening out there. You know, I've been teaching people about COVID and the precautions, especially around overdose. And I remember my first overdose response in the park, and it was right after I taught people like, this is what you need to do and don't go into a confined space and you need to make sure that this happens. And someone knocked on my car window and there was an over there, like there's an overdose. And I just like booked it out of my car. And as I'm going to the to the overdose, I'm trying to put my PPE on, do my hand hygiene, and I'm showing up there, and then I'm like, well, now I'm wearing a mask, and he needs breaths, like, I just take my mask off, and it was just, like, so clunky and uncomfortable, um, but we but we figured it out, and the, and the person stayed alive, and it wasn't perfect, um, but the end result is that that person was safer and, and was able to be supported, and so you really just need to take all of that complexity and then break it down into pieces that are digestible for people to actually put into practice. Mm. And Aileen, I have a question for you, which makes me smile because I think initially when we uh, talked about this date, you were going to be teaching people how to negotiate with landlords, which is one of your skill sets. And this question is, can you speak to how to maintain relationships with landlords while rapidly rehousing people who've been evicted? And I know you mentioned that you're having a bit of trickiness with the hotel staff, but I know that you have extensive experience in negotiating and, and working with landlords. So. Yeah, I, I think that um, so right now in terms of like units and apartments, people can't get evicted in L.A. So that's been kind of helpful, although 75 percent of evictions are not uh, formal evictions that go through court. Um, so I think the biggest thing with any sort of land owner, I'm going to put in quotations, so a landlord, a hotel manager, anyone like that, I think is just understanding what is their bottom line, what's important to them. Um, I think I've been trying to bridge the gap with the general manager at this one hotel for a while and just really looking at it as like he 
he has a lot of pride in his job. He's put a lot of work into managing this hotel. And now his world has completely changed uh, and he's not happy about it. He's not dealing with it with grace and definitely not in a really nice way and potentially a slightly racist way. Um, so while I don't want to like make that okay and just cave to everything that he does, I still need to approach him with an understanding of where is his kind of, where is he coming from so that we can work through this? Cause if you can't negotiate with someone, if you don't see where they're coming from at all, if it's all about kind of your bottom line versus theirs, I think you're going to end up in a lot of conflict. Um, but how you do that is is challenging. And uh, I think negotiating with landlords and anyone like that, you're going to find a different situation with every single landlord. So it's about trusting your own skill to just respond and just know what you have to offer. Mm-hmm. And I like that you mentioned, because uh, I've heard you talk about this before, finding out what their bottom line is, what matters to them, because that's usually a place to start the conversation. That's good. Thank you. Um, and this is a great place. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left. I'm going to give you guys time for this. So what would you say to someone who doesn't have experience, but their heart is for frontline work and they're thinking about applying for an outreach position? What advice would you give them on taking that new position <laughs> from everything you've learned? <laughs> I mean, if, if you're, Hard is about 75% of, of that work. And the people who do outreach, the people who do peer support, um, the people who work in this sector, they have the biggest hearts that I know. Um, and, you know, we can, we can teach people um, the, the policies. We can teach people trauma-informed care. Um, but you can't teach people compassion. And so if they have the heart, if they have the, the desire to work in that profession, I would absolutely encourage them to do so. Um, I would say if you have the opportunity to try and get some some education under your belt and to really understand some of the underlying issues that that permeate around homelessness, um, some of the some of the reasons why people are where they are. Uh, when you understand that, um, it becomes a much easier job and much easier type of type of work to do um, because you understand where people are coming from and 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 you can learn to not take some of the losses and some of the negativity. So personally, um, it can definitely weigh on you. It could definitely wear you down for sure. Um, so also making sure that you, you have a good support system set up and you have people that you can talk to when things get challenging and, and when they get difficult, that's, that's really important. I've been very, very fortunate in the last few months that I have a whole pile of people that I can call up uh, when things aren't going very well and I can kind of have a dialogue with them and, and get some support. And that's been one of the one of the saving graces for me during all of this, all of this negativity that's been happening for the last three months. Mm-hmm. Hey, Lynn. Um, yeah, I think so. I'm going to go back to what I said about National Alliance uh, webpage has some great trainings. There's some they put out on working with people who are unsheltered during COVID-19. Um, and yeah, I think street outreach is one of those things that you kind of do have to learn on the job. So not having experience in it isn't that uncommon. And you probably have experience in something that is valuable. I think the the one thing that I've learned probably in the last few years only around street outreach is to go out and just be yourself and trust that like the the thing that you have to offer is just hearing someone out and trying to see what you can do. 
and never go into it thinking you have to have the resource in hand already. The the job of outreach isn't to go with a resource to offer people. It's to go and find out what resource they're interested in and to see if you can make that connection. And just being really, people can understand the work that takes. And so being honest and communicate as much as you can. No one will ever keep a phone or keep it charged at all. And so you can't rely on that. Um, and don't don't give up after if you see someone once at some place, you set up a time to see them again, going to meet in the same place and they're not there. Try again, because the likelihood is that life and trying to meet basic needs got in the way of getting there. And it wasn't because they didn't want to work with you. Um, if you keep showing up and are consistent and just genuine, you usually can get somewhere, even if it doesn't mean that you're walking into an encampment to just house people right away. That's it's not that easy. So don't feel don't feel nervous that you don't have that right now. I think, too, what you said uh, earlier on when you were telling your story too, Aylin, was uh, you talked about humility. And I think that humility is a big skill to practice if you're going to be in this line of work um, and just, you know, practicing the fact that you're going to be wrong and you're going to be wrong often, um, and that's okay. And when you are wrong, you just learn how to how to take it on the chin and say, okay, I'm going to do things differently next time. And that genuine humility, it goes so far with developing relationships. I never have the perfect approach when it comes to working with people, uh, but they know I'll keep coming back. They know I'll keep adapting and, and changing depending on what it is that they need and, and how, how they see support really working for them. Mm-hmm. I just feel so lucky to be in the same room with both of you virtually. Um, you're both powerful advocates, uh, intelligent people who are compassionate and humble and who do really important work. And so it's been really, I really appreciate just the chance to have a conversation with both of you. Um, just as we wrap up here, uh, is there something that you're hoping for in terms of where we're at, um, you know, we're kind of in this weird temporary housing that could become permanent uh, situation. What's one thing that uh, you're hoping to see happen as as things develop here in the next six months or so in terms of supporting people? Well, one of the things I've been encouraged by is is seeing the, the B.C. government actually purchase a couple of the hotels and and that while again, the process has been far from perfect. Um, we might have cracked open like how bad things were beforehand. We might have shown just how shitty the world really is for people mm-hmm. who experience homelessness. Uh, and I don't think we can close that back up. And so I do, I'm, I'm very optimistic that we will see more access to permanent housing, social housing. Um, I'm really hopeful and optimistic that safe supply will be around following COVID. Like when, when COVID is over, that safe supply stays because it's a, a very important response to the overdose crisis, which will still be here when COVID is no longer a thing. Uh, and I, I really hope we continue to press some of the issues and we do see decriminalization uh, being brought into the major discussions um, and we see some action and some some courage from our political leaders in order to act on that. That's good. Thank you, Corey. Aileen? Uh, it's a good question. I think right now I'm still letting some of the dust settle that I'm not even quite sure what what I'm hoping for next, I guess I just hope that 
we can learn from this idea that we don't have to have this perfect plan in place that we can act and we can do things. Um, you need to have thought and intention in what you do. But I think sometimes we spend way too much time just trying to map it out. Um, and I, I really hope that our paperwork requirements change. Yes. I want to not do 71 pages of signed documents of like legal terminology with someone just to get into uh, a bed. So that's my biggest hope right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that paperwork always ends up being evil in some iteration. <laughs> Maybe that's too strong a word, but bureaucracy can often get in the way of change. Hey, when we start uh, creating too many forms and hoops for people to jump through to get that bed. All right. Well, uh, you've just both talked that person into applying for an outreach job. So well done. <laughs> and, um, I just want to say thank you again for, for both of your time here. You're welcome to turn off your webcams now as we finish up. And um, I'm just going to put up a couple slides here. Uh, uh, Westside Harm Reduction is where one of the many things that Corey does. Um, and you can email him here. If you have questions or comments for Aileen, uh, you can also get in touch with us and we'll pass them on to her. Uh, you can find everything on our website. You can send us an email. You can give us a call. You can go to that coronavirus section for all the sector resources. This uh, conversation that we've had will be recorded and put up as a video as well as part of our new podcast feed. So you can listen to it when you're driving or jogging or walking the dog. Um, and again, I'm so thankful for this conversation today. I'm thankful for the work that Aileen and Corey do. And I'm also thankful for the advice they gave because a lot of us are doing that. We're showing up. And I want to say thank you to you who is on the line today. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for continuing to do your work in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of changing guidelines, in the midst of changing job descriptions and a certain amount, amount of chaos. Um, we here at HSABC want to support you however we can, and we're really proud of the work that you're doing. So stay calm, stay safe, and take care, everyone, and hopefully we'll see you again. HSABC is a provincial, member-driven organization, and our mandate is to strengthen and unify services across BC that are addressing the needs of those experiencing homelessness. Right now, so many of our members, as well as their friends, families, colleagues and clients, are facing unprecedented challenges, as well as a total change to our daily lives. And we're here to help support you on the front lines, however we can. You keep showing up, even in the most intense and difficult of circumstances, for the most vulnerable. Thank you for all the work you do, and for continuing to do it every day. Our website is hsa-bc.ca, and you can find COVID-19-specific resources for frontline and shelter workers, including handouts, posters, webinar video, news and health authority updates, and much more. You can also email us at info at hsa-bc.ca or find us on Twitter at underscore hsabc. Stay calm, stay safe, stay strong.